You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we welcome autism coach and best-selling author Jennifer Cook to the podcast to talk with us about building relationships and fostering connections for those on the spectrum. You may recognize Jennifer from her role as a relationship consultant on the Emmy Award-winning Netflix series, Love on the Spectrum, where she helped neurodivergent adults navigate the world of dating. Jennifer, we're thrilled to have you on today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, a delight to be with you and get to talk about a whole lot of fun things. Now, I'm I'm excited only because I have two children myself, and quite frankly, the the subject of relationships and dating, I'm, I feel like I'm I'm out of tune. I've been off the market for 20 <laughs> years. So I have no idea what we're going to be wading into here. You probably know more than you think. I think when it comes down to it, the essentials haven't changed, except for add-in social media. That's a whole other. That's a whole nother uh, can of worms. Well, hopefully we get into that can of worms, but um, I did want to kind of set the stage because if if I'm correct, is that you're neurodiverse yourself and uh, were diagnosed later in life. Um, how did How did that come about and how did you explore that diagnosis and did that change things for you? Oh, absolutely. I was diagnosed uh, 11 years ago. And um, it was subsequent to, so I have three kids. And back in the day, it was, you know, Asperger's syndrome. Um, now, obviously, we're all under the umbrella, which is a, a unifying thing and can bring so much strength. Back in the day, that's what it was. Um, I, like I said, I have three kids. Now they are 19, 16, and 13, but subtract 11. And we had some young folks. Um, I've got a daughter and two sons, and um, my two eldest had been diagnosed with Asperger's, and I joke that if the third one had been neurotypical, I wouldn't have known what to do with them, you know, at this point, but um, their dad was actually diagnosed just before I was, and um, and then mine, honestly, was a matter of me going, you know, my, my father had passed away not long before uh, the kids were initially diagnosed, and um there just seemed to be so he was he was the classic absent-minded professor you know absolutely brilliant and socially you know uh, uh, there were many guffaws shall we say so um looking you know back at my own life I kind of thought there seemed to be some links genetically and I wonder if that could be me went and sort of went through um the checklist if you will of the way autism presented and noticed that a lot of them just couldn't apply to me because you know, they seemed particularly male-centric, to be very honest. Um, you know, just the simple things of I didn't have trains to or, you know, uh, trucks to line up and, and do things like that with. But I certainly made little tableau with my Barbies and, you know, preferred to do that instead of necessarily uh, interacting um, and creating my own stories. A lot of times I would be mimicking the news, which is a little bit weird for a little kid, but that's what I did. So I went through all of the... Um, you know, criteria, if you will, and looked at them and sort of said, okay, rather than just saying yes, 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 or no, this doesn't fit, let's look at and decide what was the need that was being um, served by this particular type of behavior that's being described. By doing that, it became a whole different story. It's, it's The way I liken it now is, you know, Jeff, if you had a can of soda 
and it's obviously, you know, opaque and it's carbonated and perhaps dark. And I've got a bottle of water and it's plastic and, and you know, transparent and clear, the, the beverages. Well, we both got something that looks very differently. However, however, they're there to serve the same need. We both have thirst and need to quench our thirst. Well, it's the same thing. Boys and girls do things perhaps a little bit differently. And obviously we're talking about, you know, um, cis boy, cis girl, um, gender assigned at birth. It, although it's been really interesting. That's a whole nother topic. How um, folks who um, are transgender have really seen their, themselves in a lot of the work that I've done on behalf of women and girls. So it's, it's just neat. It's neat where nature and nurture intersect. It's just a, a really cool topic. But that being said, went through it and everything just kind of clicked uh, to the point where I actually put that together now. It's something called the Chicklist Checklist. It was in one of my books and um, it's a free download too. We can talk about that at the end, but I think it's helped a lot of people be able to see themselves and identify themselves. Um, anyway, so brought it to the therapist that I was seeing at the time um, who was helping me kind of navigate my kids' diagnoses. And, um, you know, she said that all makes perfect sense. And I think that makes sense that you were on the spectrum too. And for me, that was a great relief because it made so much of my life make sense. And if you think about it almost in a mathematical way, those, those icky if-then statements that you used to have to deal with in geometry or whatnot, it made sense in the, sen in the, in the way that if, um, if this was the case, then I wasn't, insert adjective, negative adjective here that maybe I had heard growing up or maybe I had felt and self-assigned growing up. So instead, it was this great sense of, um, you know, awareness, self-awareness. So it was a wonderful thing for me. And obviously, obviously it's changed my Libby advocacy work that I had no intention of doing and, um, you know, no intention of writing books, et cetera, et cetera, has completely changed my world. So um, for me, it was one of the greatest moments uh, of my own personal history. Absolutely. And I would imagine that just the ability to sit back and self-reflect and be self-aware, despite the fact that autism is so broad in nature, it, it gives that, that second thought of, okay, so what's the experience of this individual and how does that relate to maybe some of the neurodivergence or some of the aspects of autism mm -hmm. that that person is experiencing? And how do we work those things so that they become symbiotic in nature is that they work together. Um, Absolutely. I, so is that is I'm guessing that's what led you into the coaching is that you you went through this process and you realized that the relationship uh, component is so difficult for all of us, let alone somebody who's trying to navigate social aspects. What were those pieces of, you know, social awareness that that you feel like, you know, this is a commonality that we all kind of deal with that maybe are exaggerated if somebody has some some social awareness uh, differences or perspectives you know, that change. I love the way I love the way you phrased, you phrased it. Yeah. So the the odd thing is the coaching really didn't formally happen until after Love on the Spectrum um, because there was such a demand. Really, what I started off with when my kids were young, um, I started off working with. Um, well, doing, writing the first thing had that happen was I wrote a book. Honestly, I wrote a book based on what I was doing with my kids, um, the teaching that I was, how I was teaching them. They were homeschooled at the time, um, or at least two of them were, um, and then Montessori-based, um, and began kind of unraveling, if you will, the secret social rules. That's the second book that I wrote, and um, 
it it all it sort of took off like the first talk that I ever gave was a keynote. Um, I'm not sure how I stumbled all into it and how, you know, we've gone from the books now are there are nine of them and we're looking at nine different languages. Um, it's, you know, as diverse as, a, you know, a very adult memoir to a Sesame Street book. Um, so they're kind of all over the place. Um, but what I've kind of noticed above all, you're absolutely right. It, you know, there are these secret social rules that um, because so many people, because really being neurodiverse means challenges with executive functioning in many ways, and also with mind blindness or theory of mind issues. And so the way, you know, your, your listeners are probably familiar with these terms, but the way I describe mind blindness, and that is a term that I use anyway, um, you know, is simply the idea that it, we don't organically um, step into somebody else's perspective. We have to learn to interpret what our what our tone sounds like, what our verbiage sounds like, how it's, how it's coming across. So when you're not doing that naturally, there are lots of pitfalls. And that was the, the second book that I wrote was basically I started taking notes on um, these these little social rules that were happening around me that I would never have paid attention to had I not been recently diagnosed. The first two books came within one year. Um, and in doing that, uh, it was real strange because um, I, like I said, I started taking notes and saying to people, you don't realize it, but you know, that was a social rule. And um, again, back to that same therapist that I mentioned before, she said to me, um, have you, you know, you really ought to turn this into a book. And I said, do you think anybody would read it? And this book itself has sold almost 100,000 copies. That tells you how unself-aware I guess I was, but how incredibly um, broad is the need um, to sort of make sense of the things that for a typically developing mind um, really, uh, you know, don't need to be so explicitly put out there. So, no. um, yeah. When, when you when you kind of go through that and, and you're talking through, you know, just even the theory of mind components behind it is that the the development of perspective, it's it's such a challenge. And I, I deal with this with with my children as well. It's you might feel a certain way. You might experience something a certain way. But the person that you're communicating with or that you're engaging in a relationship with yes. might be on a completely different what are some of these rules that that you have that you've outlined? Because obviously, if you're selling best-selling books, there is that need out there, and people are seeking the information. What would be some of these rules that that we can kind of dive into? Sure. So some of the things are, you know, um, a lot of people on the spectrum because we tend to be a little bit black and white. I say anxiety is the nemesis of all things awesome, and certainly of all people awesome. And so, being on the spectrum, anxiety is a major thing that so many of our, us are dealing with, which makes perfect sense because you've got sensory challenges that are coming in real time. And then, when you're not reading things as they happen, from, you know, or as other people are necessarily experiencing them, there are a lot of pitfalls. There are a lot of stub toes, if you will, emotionally. Um, and so it makes sense that we would be very either or because we want to enrich it in our thinking. So one of the things I talk about, um, because we're trying to keep control over a situation that, and uh, an experience that may not be within our control. So one of the things I talk about is being um, cooked or uncooked spaghetti. And that if somebody is, I, I kind of make up these little terms because you can then talk about once you've explained it with, your, um, with someone you care about, you can kind of throw in the, hey, uncooked spaghetti. And what that just simply means is, 
being rigid and thinking, you know, you take a take a handful of uncooked pasta, you try to break it with or bend it, what's going to happen, it's going to snap, right? But with a little bit of time and warmth, you have this wonderful, flexible thinking. So things like that, um, understanding that uh, anger is not a Anger is a Band-Aid emotion. It's literally, I've actually written on people's hands and made a little sad face underneath and then put the Band-Aid over that anger is, it's a secondary emotion that um, is being experienced that needs to be peeled off. It's real, you can see it, you experience it, but what actually needs to be healed is underneath. Um, so talking about self-advocacy, talking about um, how you can speak your own your own feelings um, and, and challenge you know, how you're accepting criticism. Um, the idea that um, you've got to be able to hold hold the pillow is a phrase that I use. Um, it's a little it comes from a little experiment where um, I had I had seen one of my my uh, children's uh, psychiatrists actually did this, and I love it. And so this is where hold the pillow comes from. Is that basically she would have the child kind of stand there and take a little cushion from her her pillow uh, from her couch and throw it at my daughter and my daughter you know just sort of stood there and got bopped by this thing um she did it again and this time you know my daughter sort of like moved to the side because what's going on here and the last time she caught it and the doctor said now I'm going to stop throwing pillows at you and basically the idea was that as soon as you can hold on to something difficult you know if once criticism happens, it's it's happening, you know, um, even with the best of intent, you know, in air quotes, right? Um, but it's going to keep coming at you, lessons are in life, until you can literally hold on to the discomfort for just a second or two. But in doing that, um, you get to hear, you get to listen, you get to grow. But it does take just a moment of, of you know, being able to tolerate discomfort. Um, you know, things like um, knowing what how to express your feelings, you know, in and how to reflect back. So it's I feel statements and um, understanding that when we're starting conversations with you do this, you do that, that we're pointing fingers in a way that's only ever going to be um, detrimental to us. Or there's a lot of perfectionism out there and understanding that, you know, when when you go to watch a, um, a tightrope walker, right, there's that level of, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, is he or she going to fall? And Nobody loves it when the person just goes right across. If they were to just, you know, prance across the wire, that's not very exciting to watch. But what we do love and cheer for is when there might be a little wobble here and there might be a little wobble there, but they keep it together and they're able to keep going. And so in the same way, doing things and being, you know, or doing things perfectly and being perfect, first of all, of course, that's a goal that no one can achieve. But beyond that, um, you're also you're off-putting in what we think is being endearing. I know for me, this was the case growing up. I was absolutely that overachieving perfectionist. And if I didn't get everything right, I felt like I was probably going to let my teacher down. That let down my, my identity was wrapped up in that. And, and I understood it, that, that the other kids would expect me to be that way too. And so they would want me to be this, you know, super excellent person, which is not, of course, what your peers actually want, because they don't want to feel condescended to. Um, but for me, just learning that um, wobbling a little bit on the tightrope and people cheer for you when you're human and they don't root against you. And so it's just a whole lot of, lot of things like that. Yeah, I appreciate that, that you express that, because I think that oftentimes is that that polarity of I'm either right or I'm wrong or yep. I either did it right or I excelled at something or I failed at something. It's, it's a tough thing for everybody to go through. But if you're taught that from the beginning yes. is that this is how you have to do it, it becomes even more challenging. Um, as, as, 
as you're doing your your coaching on this, and and, and right now coach me on this because I'm going to have to help my own children, but as you're looking through it, I think that a lot of times right now is that children and adolescents, they don't learn the idea of relationships and dating as that ability to kind of explore a relationship rather than it being this physical demonstration of a relationship. And I, what is it that, that you coach people? Do you coach people to say, Hey, you know what? Go out and date a variety of people and make it conversational, learn about yourself, learn about them and understand, or are you more on, you know, this is what a one-on-one relationship looks like when you're doing your coaching? So it depends. It depends very much on the person who's coming to me, right? So um, I've got folks who are single and I've got folks who are in relationships. And, you know, the above and beyond, though, really what it comes down to for all of them is it's the same skills in making and keeping friends. And we all know that for people on the spectrum that making, first of all, making and keeping friends are two separate skills. Um, But those can be challenging. And so it only follows through, you know, I would liken dating to like leveling up on a game, uh, you know, in gaming, um, that what you're doing is really just becomes more intense um, and more interdependent in in a healthy way, obviously. Um, But learning those same social skills, learning what sounds like, you know, interrogation, what sounds like uh, cooperative conversation, what shows that you're actually listening and how can you reflect that? How can you ask someone something that doesn't sound too, or when can you ask something that sounds personal and when when shouldn't you? What can you reveal about yourself and what should you be feeling in certain moments of as a relationship progresses? So um, it's really interesting to see how truly, whether you are uh, a, a kid learning to make friends um, and keep them, because keeping them is usually a lot harder Um, or you're a teen or an adult looking to meet someone or are in a relationship that you want to continue, first of all, understanding that um, rejection is a part of life and it hurts, but almost always it's not personal. It has more to do with the dynamics than with you personally. And also trying to find some fun in the experience, which can be hard and scary. And let's face it, it's, you know, small talk is is difficult for everybody um, in certain ways. And so understanding how that can work and um, how to how to phrase what you want, what you really want to get out there. um, It's tough. It's tough. But learning that you know, you can say things as simply as I'm nervous or I'm not really sure what to say or, you know, are, how are you feeling about all this? It's okay to be vulnerable. You don't have to have it all together, which is a misconception that I find readily throughout the people that I'm working with. That's the, that's the word that uh, constantly was just flashing in my head was vulnerable. It's, it's, it's hard to be vulnerable. And, and whether you've gone through life with a protective shield or with a bubble around you or kind of just feeling like I can't expose myself because I haven't always been accepted, is that vulnerability probably increases. But you, you on, the, on the show, Love on the Spectrum, is that you asked a really good question, and that was what it means to have a girlfriend or boyfriend. And your description there of being having relationships and even how I look at a lot of uh, very successful marriages where your spouse and partner is your best friend is um, what is it that that you do to help people explore what they're looking for and how to be able to start finding that because 
following a rule is different than really understanding your own desire at that time. Absolutely. Um, that being said, I think it's important that when you are learning about the quote unquote rules, right, that you ask the questions, why does this matter? Why, what does this, you know, people on the spectrum are often accused of being self-centered and I don't think that's accurate at all. I think we're self-referenced. Um, and I think that, you know, it's essential to understand that when learning these quote unquote rules, you have to understand, if you will, what does that do for me? And, you know, why does saying thank you? Why does, um, you know, if eye contact's difficult, what can you do um, to kind of still meet a need that somebody else might have? And why does that matter? Um, you know, having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, it's exactly what it should be. It should be your best friend. I know I feel very, very blessed that, that my husband and I have that kind of relationship. And I try to think back and, you know, think what what has worked for us so well and that I can kind of put that out there for others. Um, because it is a complex, you know, a nuanced um, growth. I think a lot of times what I do for the people who are single, who aren't even in a relationship and, you know, are just looking... To, to meet people is talking about their own interests and talking how they about how they can develop um, the self-confidence that they are interesting. And generally, you know, the way you're the most interesting is by showing uh, your interest in someone else. Um, but doing, you know, being more active in ways that you open up your own life to meeting other people. And then, you know, you don't have to be the center of all things at all times if you don't want to be although what a misconception that people on the spectrum aren't necessarily social i mean i was uh, a social chair for my sorority that tells you like it's literally the opposite <laughs> of what you might guess <laughs> you know but um but yeah so I, I think it's a matter of when you're coming to understand yourself it's really saying okay well what more can i be doing not necessarily to be the perfect partner because there's no such thing but to be a more nuanced deep think deeply thinking um enriched human being because let's face it that's the kind of person that people want to be around there's two types of popular popular there's the popular that intimidates everyone and 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 uh you know causes unkindness and then there's the popular that makes people feel good about themselves and about being around you and you want to be around that kind of personality more so the more that i can encourage people to maintain their true sense of self but and at the same time you know get out there into the world and try to broaden their horizons try to meet more people understanding that you may not meet you know your ideal person uh in this group or that group but you might meet somebody who knows somebody who it's you know it's like exponential it's right it's hyperlinks this way and that way um, and it will happen. It's just a matter of, you know, when you are in your best place is when you're going to find the best kind of relationship. I love that. And, and I mean, the fact that you're tackling this, that's, it's been such a taboo discussion for, I mean, almost the entirety of, you know, treatment for autism and neurodiversity. And, and I say treatment loosely here, but yeah, no. It, it's never been researched to this point. It's never been looked at. It's never been the focus. The focus has always been remediation rather than trying to yep. teach these opportunity skills. Yes. And yes. One of the things that that kind of hits me is that as we talk through this, is that even when we try and be our best selves, and 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 you know we are we're out there and we're like, and we might be thinking, oh, that person is is wonderful. I really enjoy them. That might not be reciprocated all the time. Yep. And and 
rejection occurs and that's got to be one of the skills that's tough and that you're working on how do you how do you work with people on moving forward after a rejection if vulnerability is the key issue in the beginning anyways yeah resilience is tough stuff right you know and the ability to cope we talked a little bit about holding the pillow um you know learning to be able to tolerate discomfort for short term knowing that it will end, knowing that there's more to come and that that sometimes what's being, if you will, thrown at you, it's not even personal. It has more to do with them, you know, or whatever might be going on in their in their lives um, or that the fit just isn't there. But that doesn't mean that you're not a good or attractive person. Um, I think what I end up dealing with sometimes is, you know, people's reaction. There's the fight, flight, freeze, fawn, right? So when people are feeling hurt, there's going to be that anger band-aid perhaps, Um, There might be the inward, you know, the drawing inward and either a depressive reaction or, you know, self-flagellating, right? This is, I do this so badly, I do that so badly, or the, I'm going to just people please everybody so that um, this never happens to me again. And none of those things are actually healthy. It's all, you know, it really is learning about and dissecting, okay, so instead of calling this person names because you're so angry, you know, in private or calling yourself names, what could we do in this moment? What can we learn from the interactions and how can we put that, you know, in your favor going forward? No, and I think that that's, and it is a tough skill and that's something that has to be learned, not just in dating, but throughout all of life. And absolutely, I would looking at kind of, you know, the the approach that you've taken and, and the books that you've written is that you're empowering people, you're empowering uh, children, you're empowering adults, you're giving them a, a playbook. Um, and I think that that is extremely valuable because you have this this other side of the world, which is social media and all these <laughs> social influences, which is probably teaching at times the opposite of what you want for our children to learn. So how do you, how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, completely. There was, you know, there's, um, Christina Aguilera just put out another remix of one of her older songs, um, where she's got all the, you know, kids focusing on, um, their phones. It's again, my kids are in their teens now as well. And I see, you know, how toxic the world of social media can absolutely be. It's something that I have to, I have to engage in for work and I loathe it. Um, it's just because to me, it feels so awkward to just say, all right, everyone look at me and here's what I'm doing. It's so, you know, it, and, and to try to be sincere. Um, I, I worry in that um, when I go back to that tight rock, tight, rope walking um, analogy when, you know, folks are trying to put on a persona and trying to be this this flawless, perfect thing, they are not realizing that, of course, the face that everyone else puts forward is not their real, most authentic self either. Um, and it, 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 it can be, you know, so tragic, too, in that um, communications that are based on, you know, snaps or tweets um, can be so volatile so fast. So um, I try to encourage as much as and and that is not to say that I think online connections are bad because they're not. Um, I think some of my best friends live literally across the the globe and I get to see them maybe once every five, six years, but uh, connect through, you know, um, being online together. And so I think that um, 
it's important and essential to understand that dating apps, you know, again, it's a swipe, it's a sw it's swipe this way or swipe that way. That's not real reality. That's not a real person. That's not authenticity. Um, but it is the way that some people meet nowadays. I certainly think the best way to do it is always through your own interests and through developing real relationships, which then you can keep up if online if you need to. But um, I think it really does come down to, um, again, that that authenticity of developing your own interests so that you can feel confident in that you are interesting. It's so frequently that's what I'll get from, from folks I'll work with is they genuinely don't think they're interesting. And I think part of that comes from the fact that, uh, you know, with special interests being such a part of their own um, identity, that when they'll talk, um, you know, for long periods of time about, and or the way I put it is taking up all the air in the room, right? You know, when you're talking at, um, sort of ad nauseum about your professorial subject, um, you're going to get a negative reaction from other people. Understanding why that is and understanding that it's not perhaps the topic and it's not you, it's just the length and the how. Um, things like that, you know, learning that that's going to get you a reaction that you're not going to be particularly happy with. Um, there really are keys that you, that you can learn because uh, because of those reactions, the negative reactions to doing that, you'll find that uh, a lot of folks think they're not interesting because they're uh, they feel like they repel people. Um, and I think it has more to do with, uh, again, that mind blindness and understanding what you're putting out there, how it looks, because then it's a lot easier to make a tweak here, make a tweak there, not to who you are, but to possibly how you are in the moment. Yeah, I mean, relationships, I mean, they're complicated. And Ugh, I mean, yes. when you have this, and and I we we're constantly banning social media and then reintroduce it under different yeah. contexts in our house. So I mean, I, I see like, oh. yes. <laughs> yes. but um, it's it's one of those things where it's very easy not to or to play a character, not be yourself, not trust that mm -hmm. you are that interesting person when you have this online persona. And yeah. I the the coaching that you have that's going out there just to really explore who you are, own it and, and kind of be able to kind of express that and, and share your interests and be yourself, be vulnerable, share your fears, share your interests, share your successes, everything that becomes the package that, that creates dynamic relationships. And I, I appreciate the fact that that coaching is going on, but I also understand this isn't just for neurodiverse populations. I would yes. imagine every one of your books would benefit almost every adolescent I know. And that's the normalcy to this. Yes. Uh, you know, that's, that is what I, I feel fortunate enough to hear. Um, and I think it's true, you know, even when I'll talk to teachers, for instance, I'll give tips about, you know, doing this in the classroom or that in the classroom. And I'll always say, you know, what's maybe more essential for neurodivergent kids or adults it only ever helps and benefits everybody, always, you know, because it takes the time, it, it makes folks slow down a bit and take a little bit of time to really analyze what they're doing, what they're saying and what's going on in real time. Um, I think conversation happens so fast, reaction happens so fast. When we can, you know, put a little breaks on the situation, um, you have better conversations, there's less overreactivity, there's less, um, absolutes that get thrown in real time. So uh, yeah, no, I, I concur. I think the lessons that are most essential for neurodivergent folks only ever benefit everybody else too.
Absolutely. Empathy, perspective, all of those things, yes. all those characteristics that I hope that I can embolden in my own children are, are things that I think probably just read through everything that you're putting out there. So, I mean, it is tough and being a parent is tough right now. And for almost every single parent, especially for those with uh, children who are neurodiverse, is that their number one goal is their child's happy and develop yeah. meaningful relationships. So what do you tell the parents and how do you how do you coach them on supporting their loved ones? You know, being the role model is is certainly, um, you know, you got to live what you say, you got to practice what you're preaching. Right. So um, I think that's the biggest one is to take a good look in the mirror. And if you feel like you're maybe not communicating the best with your spouse, because it's hard to raise kids in general add anything extra challenging to the equation and you know or to the mix and it's super duper hard and that can be really hard on relationships i think parents need to be able to find a way to give themselves some grace and some time within their own uh, relationship their own marriages or you know whatever the partnerships um and so in that case i think that and especially when you'll have oftentimes one parent perhaps more understanding of what's going on and looking more to feeling more like the advocate and the other than there tends to be a but you're not and it's a for against and who's for and against and it, it can create division pretty fast um, so I think that's one of the biggest things that they can do for their kids is to take care of themselves first, because that's what the kids are seeing and reacting to. Um, and then I think it's an understanding. I think it's a matter of listening to adults on the spectrum, because, um, you know, the fact is that we and trusting themselves. The fact is, though, that, you know, that we um, kind of get it perhaps in a different way. And understanding your child, your teen, your adult child, doesn't matter, understanding where they're coming from is only going to help you to, um, to advise them as they go forward. Because you're right, we all want our kids to be happy and healthy, but that looks differently for different people. Um, and what, what, you know, what are your goals? Understanding that the goals that you have for your child are not his or her goals necessarily. Um, that we, we don't have many me's, we just want um, we want, all want good for the kids, uh, but what is good for the kids can can be a little bit different when, you know, uh, it's what they want versus what we want. And we can't control things that are, uh, we can't set goals that are outside of our control. Um, that's only going to be self-defeating. Yeah, and, and I actually look at the clinical work the same way, is that you really have to look through the lens of what that individual is wanting. And the job of a clinician is to empower, it's to give the skills, it's to help somebody to be able to get the ability to be able to open up whatever door they want. Yes. But I don't choose the doors. I don't right. choose the path is that somebody else has to be articulating that, whether that is the, the child, the adult, the adolescent, whoever it is. Um, yeah. I feel like, Jennifer, today we, we only scratched the surface, but uh, <laughs> you've done so much wonderful work out in the field. And I, I want to make sure that the audience has the, the ability to reach those tools. So where can people learn about the work that you've done? Sure. So um, an easy way to, to find me is you can find me on Instagram. Like I said, I'm, I need to be more active, but I am on there and I respond very quickly to the messages or my, my staff does. Um, and that's just at Jennifer Cook author. So it's pretty easy to find um, the website. Can, it's, uh, it can be a, there's a link tree. So if you go to Instagram, there's a you just click on the link in bio and it'll give you links to my website. Um, 
It'll give you links to the download that I talked about, the checklist checklist. Um, it'll give you a link to coaching services um, and how to reach me about that So and to the books. So it's pretty much a one-stop shop to uh, lead you here, there, or anywhere. And, and before we step away, I, I personally, and maybe this is selfish of me, is I'd love to hear one of these stories of you know, the success that somebody has found where they've used the book, they've used the tools, they've used the guidance to understand who they are, what they want, and they've found that successful relationship. Do you have any of those stories to kind of leave us just kind of in that in that good spirit of, you know, this is going to work and, and everybody has that opportunity at relationships? Absolutely. You know, so I, I think one of the best ones honestly happened to be captured on Love on the Spectrum. I think that um, for those who who have watched the show, um, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of extra information because I know not everybody has, but there's a, um, a young woman named Abby who um, I got to meet. And Abby, I learned very quickly, um, you know, her mind goes a million miles a minute. And Abby was I could I could sense that if Abby was going to have a successful you know encounter even first encounter much less develop a relationship that it was going to be necessary that she could slow down just enough to um, have a you know have a sincere interaction or conversation with someone she knew how to ask questions but then it would be another question and then it would be another question and they weren't necessarily related to each other so one of the things that I did with Abby and this is on camera is um, I grabbed some ping pong balls. And I rolled a ball, one ball after the other at her. And I said, you know, what's your favorite color? What do you like to do? Where are you coming from? What, you know, what do you like to study? At, and, you know, one after the other, one after the other. And, and she said, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> and, you know, I said, it sure is, Abby, but let's try something differently. And we just took one ping pong ball and we took turns. She would ask me a question. And I responded to her question, asked her another one. And she responded to that, which I then responded to and on and on and on. And we went only for about a minute. But I said to her, do you realize what you just did? You just had a full conversation. And the expression on her face was, you know, just fantastic. She was so proud. And I said to her, you know, can I shake your hand? Because it was a great and wonderful moment. And um, and it was wonderful to see that as the series followed Abby, she did get to meet somebody who they had a real special connection over some of their special interests. And again, I say that is like the way to go if you can find and, um, you know, it's over a year later and they're still together. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And, and it, as you're, as you're describing what Abby is, was, was kind of learning initially, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sitting back that, gosh, I should do that every once in a while too. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good kind of practice event to have, yeah. but, uh, it's the fact that she carried that on to the relationship and, and yeah. saw value in the skill. I mean, it shows that she was motivated. Exactly. To, to develop these relationships. And I think that's where you follow. You follow somebody's motivation and, and you get there. So kudos to you. That was awesome. <laughs> ah, thank you. It was fun. It kind of came up with it on the fly. So I'm glad I was very glad it worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on today. And, and I think that there's probably so much more that we could be diving into. And especially when you're looking at some of those uh, differences, because one thing I'd love to bring you back on in the future to talk about is some of the, with the higher level of diagnostics occurring with women right now and with, with females is understanding that dynamic and understanding mm -hmm. how society has shaped specific things, which 
then become barriers for some um, neurodiverse women and, and how they can challenge some of those norms and how they can work through it to be successful and within the society too. Yeah. So um, I'd love pleasure. to have that in the future if we could. Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jennifer. I appreciate you coming on today. Absolutely. And best to all of your listeners. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.